We are ready. Okay, super. So, um, everyone, welcome. I'm Christy Balsells, and uh, joining us today is this special joint teleconference with UMDF and Cliff Gorski representing UMDF, and from Edison, Dr. Guy Miller and Dr. Matthew Klein. We are having a great um, opportunity today to talk about the latest information about Edison's Epi-743 trial and are really excited to welcome Dr. Miller and Dr. Klein. Uh, Dr. Miller, Dr. Klein, could I ask you guys to introduce yourselves just a bit and then we will um, get started on going through some of the different aspects of the trial and then I want to let everyone know that we will have a chance for questions as well. And as we get to that part for questions, um, Cliff and I will orient you on how you can ask your questions and raise your hand and we'll take turns letting people speak as well. Good morning. Uh, first, uh, Christine Cliff, thank you very much for this opportunity. Uh, to all the callers, I'm Matt Klein. Uh, I am the head of clinical at Edison Pharmaceuticals. What that means is that I oversee all the clinical activities in the company, including the design and the conduct of our clinical trials. And uh, Guy Miller here, uh, Chief Executive Officer of Edison. Okay, super. So, um, Cliff, let's take just a moment and uh, orient everyone to what our agenda will be today. And then, Dr. Klein, Dr. Miller, we're going to just hand it to you, okay? That's fine. Okay, so, so go ahead, Cliff. Uh, just, just some housekeeping issues for those uh, participating on the call. When it comes time to ask a question, you can raise your hand. There should be a feature on there for to allow you to do that. And we will see that your hand has been raised, and then we'll unmute you and call on you by name if you signed into this webinar with your name. Um, please understand, because of the number of the people on the on the teleconference, that we'll try to get to as many questions as we as we can at the end. And because of this, we ask that you only ask one question. And also, uh, this is being recorded and will be available on the Mito Action and UMDF website. So um, that those are just some housekeeping issues, Christy, that I wanted to highlight. Perfect. And let me just orient everyone, if you are not able to see where to raise your hand, you'll first need to click on the box that says participants that's up in the WebEx control panel that should be at the top of your screen. Um, it has teleconference, mute, and then participants and some other buttons. If you click on participants, that will allow you to see the bar where you'll see the speakers and you can um, raise your hand to ask a question. Many of you went ahead and sent us questions, which is fantastic. So we've compiled those and um, we'll address those throughout the meeting as well. So just sit tight if you did submit a question in advance. And many of you had similar questions, so we hope to address um, as many questions as possible today uh, during our discussion. So, But this is a, a very exciting time. I'd like to begin by just saying to Dr. Miller and Dr. Klein, thank you because this is a very exciting time for the community of mitochondrial disease families. Never before have we had a clinical trial at this point. And it's our responsibility as a patient and family community to do everything we can to be as actively involved and supportive as possible of this trial because this is the future for mitochondrial disease you guys are laying the foundation for 
all of the hope for our children and our family members. And and so we're really excited, and it's hard to be patient sometimes in this process, but this is really um, our families are the first who will be able to say we were part of the first developments of real treatments for this disease. So it's a great day to hear about Epi 743. And so with that, Dr. Miller, Dr. Klein, why don't you guys go ahead and just orient us to what's happening with the trial, and then we'll take some questions. Yeah, well, again, I'll, this is Guy Miller here. I'll uh, start off this day, and uh, Matt will fill in some of the specifics. But uh, let me start off with a couple, um, we call them announcements from the Edison side. The, the only um, uh, addition I would have, uh, Christy, to your comments and uh, that you just gave is to put an S on trial and call it trials. Uh, if the community logs on at some time to clinicaltrials.gov, uh, the uh, government website that lists the clinical trials, you'll find that there are actually seven uh, EPI 743 trials. One of them, number four, has been completed, which was the initial expanded access trial. Uh, out in front of our uh, press machine, as it were, uh, yesterday uh, was posted on clinicaltrials.gov uh, that 743 is the subject of a uh, trial that's going to start in Rett syndrome in Italy uh, that's beginning to enroll patients already. So there, there are multiple trials ongoing. And the Edison uh, team is, uh, is very excited about uh, the opportunity to explore the utility of 743, obviously, in, in mitochondrial disease. And we see ourselves as um, looking at, uh, at multiple, uh, both pediatric and adult indications. Uh, through uh, the end of the, the first part of this year, or Q2, we'll have up and running um, seven or, or eight different clinical trials spanning the spectrum of diagnoses of mitochondrial patients. And in the second part of this year, uh, we'll begin to announce um, extended studies in, in other uh, diseases or other particular genetic defects in mitochondrial disease. Uh, the other good news that um, that was a subject of a press release a week ago <clears throat> is the uh, the entry of EPI 589 into clinical development, which is a next generation 743 analog. Uh, we'll begin to talk more about uh, our pipeline of drugs because the uh, the pipeline extends well past even 743 and 589. We have four molecules that are in uh, late stage preclinical development now that we're advancing through uh, both discovery and pharmacology and, and chemistry. And so the community should expect uh, Edison to, to not only be looking at the better part of 10 to perhaps even 15 indications within the next year, uh, but also expanding our therapeutic arsenal at which we plan to attack these diseases on multiple fronts and multiple mechanisms. Uh, one last comment, um, and then I'll turn the attention to just a general comment on the clinical trials and the status, and then turn it over to Dr. Klein for uh, for some of the specifics, is our announcement of our partnership with Dainipon Sumitomo Pharmaceuticals, LTD, or Dainu, uh, sometimes abbreviated or acronym DSP, uh, last week. Uh, we're very... Um, uh, we're very bullish on our uh, our partnership with DSP, a uh, world-class company uh, with a, a very long history of success and pioneering new therapeutics. 
a, a very strong interest in mitochondrial disease and children with unmet medical need in Japan. And Edison is, is working hand-in-hand -hand with the DSP team to develop and, and bring to Japan uh, 743 for all the reasons that the mitochondrial community here in the United States and elsewhere know. Uh, there, there are many patients uh, suffering from uh, similar diseases in Japan. And so our partnership with DSB uh, is, is well circumscribed. It's based only in Japan, and Edison will be responsible for development initiatives of 743 uh, worldwide out, outside of Japan and, and collaboratively with DSP uh, in Japan. Uh, in general, <clears throat> we're, we're very pleased with the, uh, the development of 743 going through its clinical trials. Uh, we have double-blind placebo-controlled trials ongoing in Lay syndrome, Friedrich's ataxia, cobalamin C deficiency, just starting in Rett syndrome, and just starting at the NIH and the Undiagnosed Disease Program uh, under the direction of Bill Gall with the assistance of Lynn Wolf and, and the team there. Uh, we are uh, very positive on the, uh, the response of the patient community <clears throat> in terms of their participation and the, uh, the professionalism and the deliberateness that the investigator communities, their institutions, uh, institutional review boards, and all the collaborative uh, physicians and uh, scientists and uh, healthcare you know, personnel that it takes to, to run these trials. Uh, most of the trials are very much enrolling on pace. Uh, I think one thing that uh, is certainly a challenge to uh, to any uh, any group, whether it be a pharmaceutical company or otherwise, that as Christy mentioned and Cliff referred to earlier, is that in developing a, a first-in-class drug for a unmet medical need, especially some of the rare mitochondrial diseases, uh, we're all in the process of doing this for the first time together. You know, many of the groups, uh, whether it's institutions or investigators uh, or personnel at Edison, have conducted uh, clinical trials before, but it, as Christy mentioned, it will be the first time that um, this concerted effort uh, is occurring across multiple institutions, in some cases multiple uh, countries uh, with multiple languages and uh, a lot of hurdles to, um, to navigate. But we, we in Edison are very pleased with uh, the progress to date. Uh, enrollment is moving well, uh, but uh, notwithstanding, we, we still need to raise awareness in the community. And as Christy again mentioned, we're highly, highly dependent on um, patients uh, reaching out to their physicians if they are potentially eligible and are interested to uh, make themselves available to participate, especially in, in rare conditions such as Lay syndrome, where, um, where we really are, are looking for subjects to meet our enrollment criteria. Um, let me turn things over to, uh, to Dr. Klein to, uh, uh, to go through a few of the clinical trials that are ongoing in uh, Lay syndrome, cobalamin C, and Friedrich's ataxia in the United States uh, and Europe. And then maybe, uh, Christy, we can field some, some questions there. Great. Great. Thank you, Guy. So to review the, the three trials that uh, Dr. Miller mentioned, uh, Lay syndrome, Friedrich's ataxia, and cobalamin C, let me just go through them uh, one by one. The Lay syndrome trial is up and running in the United States, and we have four study sites, the uh, Akron Children's Hospital, Stanford, Seattle Children's, and Texas Children's in Houston. Uh, currently, three of those four sites are actively enrolling patients, and we hope that in very soon uh, that uh, Seattle, the fourth site, will be enrolling as well. Uh, as Dr. Miller said, we are very happy with the progress of enrollment, 
And being that this is the first time through for uh, a lay syndrome trial and for many of these sites to be doing placebo-controlled trials, things are just taking the necessary time to get up and running. There's a lot of work that needs to be done internally at each site so that it can be prepared to submit all the necessary documents, all the safety documents, and also get all the different departments within the hospital that will be working on the trial in order. And so being that that's an enormous amount of work that has to go on at each site, we're very uh, satisfied with the current progress we're making. The second trial is the Friedrich's Ataxia trial, which is also being conducted in the United States, and that's being conducted at three centers, University of South Florida, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and UCLA. As of uh, today, all three sites have been activated and are enrolling patients, and as in the late trial, we're very pleased with the progress in these trials, in, in, at these sites, rather. The third trial is the Cobolamine C trial, and just like uh, the lay trial and Friedrich's trial, this is also a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, and this is being conducted in Italy at the Bibino Gesù Children's Hospital, um, and that the study is being run by uh, Carlo Dianese Vici, who's a world leader in mitochondrial diseases and has a particular interest in the Cobolamine C uh, disorder. This uh, trial is fully enrolled. All of the children, uh, 24 of them, have been uh, enrolled and been followed, and treatment has now begun with either EPI 743 or placebo. And so that's a general overview of our three double-blind placebo-controlled trials. Uh, again, the, to, to summarize, we're very pleased with the progress. We appreciate the incredible amount of work that needs to be done, not only by the centers in getting ready, but the incredible commitments by the families and the patients uh, who are interested in enrolling and who we, we are aware make tremendous sacrifices in terms of time and resources to participate in clinical trials. Uh, it's never an easy decision to participate in one. It's very hard also to travel to a study site when you have other children or other family members at home, and we appreciate these logistical challenges and, and are accordingly incredibly grateful for everyone's support and enthusiasm for what's really uh, an incredibly important time, we think, uh, not only for Edison, clearly, but for all the patients with mitochondrial diseases as we move into really uncharted but important territory. Great. Thank you. Uh, would you like to give any more specific information, maybe an overview for patients who and families who are new to the trial about the inclusion criteria specific for the mitochondrial disorder, uh, EPI-743 trial, and then um, a little detail about each of the sites? Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll take sort of a, a first cut at that, Christy, and then turn over uh, some more of the detail uh, to, uh, to Matt. So assuming that, that folks have not been a part of previous discussions, I think it might be just helpful to, to lay out the, the general landscape of how a drug moves through its process, uh, specifically with regards to um, regulatory constraints that um, are imposed uh, by the United States Food and Drug Administration or, in some cases, the European Medicines Agency. So a drug obviously, you know, starts off in a, in a laboratory where investigators are uh, working diligently to determine whether it, it might work against one of these particular diseases, 
and then there's a, a very large hurdle uh, to bring that drug into what we call first in human dose, uh, whether it be a, a phase one, which is to study the pharmacology, how the drug is absorbed and distributed through the body, as well as the safety to ensure that what was observed in animal models um, in terms of safety uh, also translated over or similarly was observed to be safe in humans. And that work is done in phase one studies. Uh, once that's been completed, there's a, a very arduous task that goes on in parallel of making or manufacturing the drug for clinical trials. Uh, in the case of 743, on the, on the order of uh, uh, probably roughly about 100 kilos of, uh, of drug being required. And that has to meet a, a very strict set of guidelines that are also laid out uh, by the FDA working in conjunction uh, with a company such as Edison. Uh, once those uh, guidelines have been met, uh, the company sits down with our investigator team and uh, scribes a protocol that uh, we believe will lead to uh, answering a very specific question. And the question that was asked in the previous EPI 743 studies, whether it was effectively in the open-label expanded access EPI 2009-1 protocol, which is now closed, or in the case of the EPI 743 Phase 2A Lay syndrome trial, was a very general question. And the question was, did 743 register uh, any evidence of clinical improvement or biochemical improvement, specifically a blood test or perhaps a brain scan, uh, consistent with what one would hope to see in a drug? And the two key questions the investigator team and the FDA are trying to get their handle on are, in addition to safety, are one, uh, do we know a dose to give to a patient that could be consistent with a biochemical or clinical response? And then secondly, what particular aspect uh, of the patient improved? And we'll call that a clinical instrument. Which tool or measuring device do we use? So for example, if a patient enrolled with seizures, did their seizures get better? Or if a patient enrolled and had trouble walking or was ataxic, did their ataxia get better? Or did their hearing get better? So what one does in an open-label 2A trial is to survey various uh, functions and correlate them with a dose that registers an improvement. And we generally call that phase two. In, in our case, we uh, further divided that into phase 2A. Once that data is compiled, uh, the company and our investigators, uh, investigator team meet uh, with the FDA and in the case of most rare diseases, it's uh, an end of phase two meeting to gain everyone's feedback on what would be required to show unequivocal benefit. And given that we're in a first-in-class drug with a pharmacology that's just being worked out and an understanding of the various clinical responses, uh, the FDA and the EMA have both required that Edison perform double-blind placebo-controlled trials. And what that means is that neither the patient nor the investigator or uh, the sponsor, by and large, know who is getting a drug or who is getting effectively a sugar pill or what we call placebo. And what that allows us to do is to use statistics to compare that, in fact, the drug effect that we hope to see or that we saw in the unblinded phase 2A trial uh, actually translate over 
in an unbiased fashion and a statistically significant manner to a phase 2B drug effect. And in the case of most rare diseases, uh, subject to regulator agreement, the phase 2B trial usually suffices uh, for uh, what we call a pivotal trial or sometimes in larger diseases, phase 3. So sometimes um, you will see the nomenclature of phase 2B slash 3 to imply that uh, this would be potentially a pivotal trial meeting all the requirements to demonstrate that the drug is safe and that the drug works and that the dose that the drug was given was predictive of the fact that it did work in achieving the agreed upon endpoint. So that's the, the paces that a drug needs to go through. Many times we're asked questions about uh, why we are doing a placebo-controlled trial, why there are several doses, perhaps in, in some trials such as, for example, the Friedrichs ataxia trial, uh, the length of the study, why do we have to do a study for six months with a six-month enrollment, um, why children have to have a genetic diagnosis, uh, isn't it uh, does not it suffice that my doctor told me that my child has a particular disease? And the, the umbrella answer to all of those questions is that the FDA has a very clear prescriptive uh, set of rules that, um, that drug developers follow. Uh, and while sometimes on an individual patient basis, they, they may not seem perhaps logical, from the perspective of the hurdles that we as drug developers must meet, which is, is the drug safe? And have we demonstrated uh, unequivocal efficacy uh, to a statistical uh, qualifying point? Uh, these criteria are, uh, are employed. And so we, we work hard to explain to the investigator uh, community as well as the patient and foundation community why many of the criteria are listed. But in short, um, the majority of them, uh, at least in, in, in our case in rare diseases, are uh, agreed to with various regulators, whether it be the European Medicines Agency or the FDA. And so that is the broad umbrella of which Edison develops its drugs through phase 2B slash 3. Uh, with regards to Lay syndrome, and then I'll turn it over to, uh, to Dr. Klein, there are a few repeated questions that, um, that we've had come up. Uh, the first is uh, around specifically genetic diagnosis. Uh, a second has been around uh, tracheostomy or severity of disease. Uh, and the, the third has been sometimes around the area of age for enrollment. And again, these are very specific criteria that, um, that have been uh, agreed to with the FDA. But let me let Dr. Klein comment on those three particular issues and, and any other ones that we perhaps missed. Thank you, Guy. Uh, just to reinforce the, the point that a clinical trial, for better or worse, doesn't always resemble real-life care, uh, not like you, any, if you have a diagnosis, you go to the doctor, and if the doctor has a treatment, uh, you can get that treatment. We're required to set up very rigid criteria, in some cases that don't necessarily resemble everyday life, and, and these are rules that we have to follow, or criteria we have to follow, so that we can clearly show that the drug works relative uh, to a placebo. And the, the age, the genetic diagnosis requirement, uh, 
were two that we spent a lot of time discussing with the regulators in order to be able to minimize the variation from patient to patient. One of the really important things when we do a clinical trial and then try to communicate those results to the regulators so they can review the information we get from a clinical trial is that it be very clear uh, what the patient group was like, that it should ideally be as similar as possible. Uh, in fact, they would say in an ideal world, we would be able to just enroll you know, sets of twins and put one twin in a treatment group and one twin in a placebo group so that they are exactly alike. Now, we all know that that's not reasonable and we can't really do that. And in fact, in a, in a disease like Lay syndrome, where there's actually a lot of variety patient to patient, a lot of variety uh, genetic mutation to genetic mutation, we were really uh, instructed to limit that variability as much as possible. And, and that's where the, the need for having a genetic diagnosis came into play. Uh, it was very clear to us that it was hard enough to explain to the regulators that there's all these different genetic mutations, yet they're all Lay syndrome. It, it got even harder to say, well, not only are all, there are all these genetic mutations that cause Lay syndrome, there's a whole bunch of patients who don't have a known genetic mutation and they also have Lay syndrome. And so we, were, we needed to actually just get rid of the, that source of what the regulators feel could be differences among the patients in the trial. Uh, and similarly with the age group, we were, we were asked to really uh, set up age limits around where the majority of patients who have Lay syndrome are so that we wouldn't be enrolling, say, uh, a 17-year-old with Lay syndrome in one of the two groups, the placebo group or the treatment group, and there really not be a lot of 17-year-olds with Lay syndrome in the trial to really be in the other group so we could compare them head to head. So again, these are requirements that we acknowledge uh, may eliminate, at least right now for this study, some patients for getting into the trial. Uh, but we are needing to do this because that's our task in, in getting a trial done that can actually prove to the regulators in a very, as, in a clear as way as possible that in Lay syndrome, EPI 743 has an important beneficial effect. I do want to uh, just emphasize uh, one of the statements I just made that for the, in, in this particular trial, uh, patients may not be eligible because I, I, I know we've gotten a lot of calls uh, from patients and families who are disappointed that they may not meet the criteria for this trial and what should they do. And we have uh, said and, and want to remind everyone that this is but one trial. And, and as Dr. Miller said, we're planning several additional trials uh, later uh, this summer and also later in the year. And so we really want to encourage all patients who think they may be eligible and are interested in participating in trials uh, to work with Christy and Cliff and, and Mito Action and UMDF and, and, and their doctors to uh, stay, in, stay in touch and stay in contact and, and also feel free to contact us because we will be starting new clinical trials. And just because you may not be eligible for this particular one, you may very well be for ones in the future. Thank you, Matt. Dr. Klein, would you like to speak um, about any of the other things that uh, Dr. Miller had addressed, or should we um, move on? I think we, let's, let's, we can move on to questions. That would be. Okay. Uh, and Dr. Miller, before we open up for questions, um, 
let's just touch on our international perspective too, a little more detail about uh, which countries have have and you um, may feel have prospectively uh, clinical trial also. Yeah, I think uh, in the broad sense, Christy, uh, Matt can correct me, and we're treating uh, through either compassion use or expanded access patients in, uh, in a whole variety of, uh, of geographic areas. We've treated um, uh, children in, um, in Japan as recently as Hungary, Poland, Russia, Germany, Brazil, uh, South Africa. Uh, so we see this effort certainly given the both the rare disease mandate of Edison as well as the the absence of a geographical bias to these diseases as as our effort is being worldwide. Uh, one of the challenges that, that we have is it's called protocol harmonization, is conducting clinical trials across either international regulatory uh, borders where there are uh, one, two, or perhaps even three different regulatory agencies in the case of, say, doing a, uh, inter a multi-center international trial between, for example, Japan, uh, Europe, and the United States, where you have the EMA, the PMDA in Japan, and the US FDA. So one has to begin to be very careful about harmonizing and ensuring that protocols that are developed meet all regulatory requirements. And we're uh, well down that road in terms of some of the international trials we're looking at for uh, the second half of 2013. Uh, in addition, uh, as we announced earlier, the, the Rett syndrome trial, which is uh, being initiated in, um, in Italy as we speak, uh, we really are agnostic to, uh, to geographical borders. What we're focused on is working with uh, the best and brightest experts uh, worldwide uh, who are the key opinion leaders and who can certainly teach Edison about all of the idiosyncratic uh, aspects of these diseases, which are, are certainly well beyond uh, our skill set as drug developers. And that those partnerships are um, absolutely incredibly joyful for the Edison team as we get a chance to, to learn firsthand from investigators who've been um, dedicating their lives to these diseases uh, very frequently and, and have key insights that we can begin to, to leverage for the drug development perspective. So I think what the mitochondrial community should, um, should continue to expect from Edison is a multitude of trials being developed uh, that are geographically non-biased. Uh, we have several uh, lined up in Europe, and um, we, um, as mentioned earlier, working closely with Dainipan Sumitomo in Japan and elsewhere. So the, the mitochondrial community should expect from medicine uh, a wave of trials being uh, internationally distributed. Okay, great. And uh, so to review, Cliff, you have some people who are raising their hands and we can uh, answer some of those questions. And then I'm also going to field the questions that we've received previously and are receiving over email. So Dr. Klein and Dr. Miller, if it's okay with you, we'll just um, throw some of these at you, okay? Great. Okay. Um, so uh, Cliff, let me, why don't I begin and then you can take a caller. That'd be perfect, um, sure, sure. Okay, great. So um, one question that comes up again and again is, um, helping to identify what it means to really have a genetic diagnosis. And I think that um, explain a little bit more, Dr. Klein, you talked a little bit about this, but helping patients and families understand um, what constitutes a genetic diagnosis and giving the rationale for some of that criteria um, in addition, 
I'm going to second that by saying one of the criteria is also some regression of disease. So talking about some of the rationale like you did for the genetic criteria to the other parts of the criteria that are um, relevant for this study I think would be helpful for the families. Yeah, Chrissy, let me feel that at a, at a real top level and, and use an example that, uh, that, that Dr. Klein referred to, which is the difference between uh, clinical care, uh, which is what, of course, uh, virtually all patients uh, are used to and expect versus participation in a clinical trial. Because I think that's where some of the, um, uh, the questions are derived from, and frankly, it's the responsibility of Edison as the sponsor and our investigator team to, uh, to make those um, uh, points uh, well discernible and understood. So let me start with just an example, which I think we'll, we'll call distinction, which is going to the doctor for a sore throat. Uh, many people go to the doctor for a sore throat and, and sometimes walk out with, that, with antibiotics uh, before a uh, diagnosis is made, uh, specifically strep throat. Uh, and then you'll hear back from your doctor a couple of days later, well, we did, a, we did the throat culture and it was negative. You can stop taking the antibiotics. And so in that case, we, we call that empiric treatment. Uh, we don't really know the diagnosis, but we know that antibiotics, by and large, uh, are safe, but you know, we're careful about indiscriminate use and we, and we place patients on antibiotics quite frequently until we get a diagnosis. Uh, the question that a doctor and patient are trying to answer there is, is a very simple one, is that you present with a sore throat. If it was strep, uh, you want to get that treated fairly quickly, uh, and if it's not, you'd like the patient to resolve their viral illness. That's not at all the type of question that Edison is asking with respect to, for example, the FDA. What the FDA must know, if we take the antibiotic um, uh, analogy forward, which people have a lot of experience with, is do you in fact have bona fide uh, strep throat and did the antibiotic in fact work? And so if the FDA uh, were requiring us, for example, to run a study there, the requirement would be that you had a um, positive uh, test for the bacteria in your throat so that you didn't have 10 or 15 diagnoses confused into the group, viral or perhaps even other bacterial sources. And so Taking this now to mitochondrial disease, what the FDA needs to know is that Edison has not only a drug, but we also know who potentially could benefit from it. So if we say a child has Lay syndrome, as many of the, the family members uh, on the call, and certainly the clinicians are well-educated to this, can result from defects inside the mitochondria, uh, respiratory chain and outside the mitochondrial respiratory chain. And what the FDA wants to know from their approval paradigm is do we in fact know specifically that the patient does have Lay syndrome because the company will ultimately be going back to the FDA to make a request for what is called a label claim. And that label sets the boundary conditions that the company can market the drug for and at least initially in, uh, worldwide or in the United States, what physicians will use the drug for. And so physicians must know that when a drug is approved, what the boundary conditions or the diagnostic criteria are for use. And if we say it's good for Lay syndrome, the physicians need to know what does that actually mean. And so the, the necessity to identify the genetic criteria of the patient 
sets ultimately not only the question, does the drug work for that particular criterion, but that doctors will know and be able to comfortably uh, work with their patients to look at risk versus benefit to prescribe that drug for that particular infection. And so, again, maybe to back over to the, to the sore throat antibiotic analogy, the question would be, are you trying to get a drug approved for sore throat, which is a very big category that you can get from anything from laryngitis all the way to strep throat, or are you trying to get a drug approved for strep throat, which is a specific antibiotic-based uh, treatment criteria? And so you wouldn't want to treat everyone with laryngitis, for example, with, a, with an antibiotic. It would be inappropriate and potentially harmful. And so we're required to have those, those same boundary conditions, which is very, very different than clinical practice. Great. That's very helpful. And um, would you also like to touch on the other criteria and the rationale? Because I think understanding the rationale really helps us as a patient family community to um, be better invested in the trial and also to um, partner better with both Edison and the clinician community as a whole. Yeah. So specifically the yeah, other we, criteria we, such as regression and trach, if you could touch on those. Yeah, sure. The um, uh, there's there's two. I'll, I'll paint the picture very generally, and then um, perhaps go into a little bit of the specifics. <clears throat> the, the challenge in developing a drug um, is to be able to see a, a reproducible, God willing benefit. Uh, as Matt said, hypothetically, but of course not realistically, we would love to have. Uh, 100 twins, uh, God forbid, you know, with a disease and to split them into two groups and to be studying one twin versus the other because the, the similarity uh, makes that uh, very desirable from a mathematical side because we know that the only thing that's changing in those twins is one is getting drug, one is not. And so there's a, um, there's a mathematical tool that we use that allows us to measure how a patient progresses during a particular interval of the disease. And what we're looking to do in the most general sense when prescribing a drug is to measure how much they got better relative to how much the untreated group got worse. And so if you took hypothetically uh, two aged matched children who were identified to have Lay syndrome, for example, at birth, uh, would probably be very little progression of the disease in the first six months of life uh, in one child with Lay syndrome. And hence, giving the drug uh, to that particular individual because the disease has not progressed, the drug can't correct a problem that has not yet manifested itself. So the desire in a clinical trial is to look at a degree of progression uh, in the untreated group and compare that, hopefully, to an improvement of progression in the treated group. And from that difference between the two and the statistics between them, we're able to compute, uh, again, God willing, a statistically significant benefit. In the case of a two-way open-label trial, we're not comparing treated to untreated. We're comparing where did the patient start in the disease and did they get better or did they get worse relative <clears throat> either to themselves or, as we published, uh, historic controls? And so to the particular question, Christy, of why we are looking for patients that have a degree of disease severity 
that is suggestive of progressive disease, it's because if the patients are not progressing uh, at some rate, we can't see that, in fact, we're going to reverse that progression and, uh, God willing, arrest it in the treatment group and then rapidly uh, compare that to the placebo group. So the requirement for a degree of progression of the disease is to see that, in fact, the disease progresses in the treatment in the placebo group and is arrested or perhaps even reversed in the treatment group. With respect to tracheostomy, we've been asked uh, multiple times about this because one of the uh, the devastating um, elements of Lay syndrome is impairment in the breathing center in the brain, and uh, recent or historic reviews have suggested this might involve as many as 70-plus percent of children with Lay syndrome. And with uh, the fantastic tertiary care centers and patient care, many uh, families are electing to perform tracheostomies as uh, bridge therapies to um, to stopgap the impairment in uh, in brainstem function, and and we of course are um, uh, applaud our physician and families' uh, you know, work here. It's obviously a huge amount of efforts to care for patients um, uh, who have undergone tracheostomies. But from a clinical trial side, there are two complications that that presents. The first is attempting to match children uh, either in the treatment group or placebo, because again, as Dr. Klein said. One of the, the first challenges is to set up two groups that are highly similar, except one group gets drug and one group doesn't. If you set up two groups that are very dissimilar and one group gets drug and the other group doesn't, you don't know whether it was the drug that actually created the effect or whether the groups were so dissimilar that you couldn't compare them. So that's the most generalized problem in a tracheostomy population. The second is that once patients uh, have had tracheostomies, many times they enter a period of stability in that their infirmity was due to respiratory distress and that after tracheostomy there's a marked level of improvement which is related to the tracheostomy. What that does is presents a problem, again, from a drug developer's and a mathematical perspective because if, for example, a patient with a tracheostomy ended up in the treatment group, and a patient without a tracheostomy ended up in the placebo group, one might expect the patient without the tracheostomy uh, to progress, and one would expect, if, if our data is correct, that the patient with the tracheostomy in the treatment group would get better. But you wouldn't know whether the patient who had the tracheostomy got better because they were receiving vigilant respiratory care by virtue of the tracheostomy, or whether they got better because they received 743. So if for some circumstance you ended up with five patients who had tracheostomies in the treatment group and none were randomized to the placebo group, you would never be able to tell that the improvement was secondary to the tracheostomy or secondary mm -hmm. to 743. So these sorts of um, challenges we've been working very, very closely uh, with our investigator team worldwide, and, and specifically even in those that are not directly involved in the trial, uh, and we have our, our finger on the pulse of, of these concerns, uh, a long-winded uh, answer to you know, a, a very detailed and complicated challenge. But as Dr. Klein said earlier, rest assured, just because you have not met the criteria for this trial does not mean that, one, of course, we're not interested in the disease. We're 
very passionate about all of these diseases, but also that we're not thinking about perhaps how to do a trial and lay syndrome for patients who don't meet the enrollment criteria and perhaps are at the opposite ends of the spectrum of disease severity, either very early or very late. Uh, those without genetic diagnoses who present, present with clear radiographic evidence of lay syndrome. Uh, or those patients who have uh, undergone tracheostomy. We're, we're looking at those questions in a very detailed and thoughtful way. And uh, I would not be surprised to see Edison tackle some of those uh, in the second half or beginning of uh, Q1 2014. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Miller. Uh, so, Cliff, would you like to let one of our callers ask a question? Sure. We have Greg and Heidi on the line ready to ask a question. What is your question for Drs. Miller and Klein? Hi, doctors. Thank you very much for what you guys do, first off. Um, my question is, um, uh, what are your thoughts on DCA versus EPI-743 treatment? Yeah, uh, you know, we've been asked, in the most general sense, we've been asked a, a whole uh, host of questions about uh, whether it be adibinone, dichloroacetic acid, uh, arginine, uh, CoQ10, uh, riboflavin, thiamine, um, DHA. The, the list is, um, is very extensive. Uh, we're not, uh, you know, experts in uh, in those other medicaments uh, or cofactors or vitamins. Uh, it's not a skill set that, that Edison possesses. Um, the, the one thing that that we say very consistently to the patient investigator community who are asking about staying on uh, therapies that are prescribed by physicians or self-medicating, again, it comes back to um, a challenge that we have with the FDA. The FDA has a, a very simple policy that you, you can't, in, in, except maybe perhaps in draconian circumstances, be on two experimental therapeutics at the same time because, again, we get back to the same uh, tracheostomy uh, question, which is we, you wouldn't know, as it were, whether you got better uh, from uh, uh, drug candidate one or drug candidate two. So what we have to do uh, from a regulatory side is look at each of these in a, in a single separate manner to ask a, a single uh, question at a time. Uh, the, the question as to whether um, DCA uh, works or not, I'll let um, Dr. Stackpole probably address that. He's probably one of the world's authorities mm -hmm. on that. And, uh, I have not followed as closely as, as our investigator colleagues have that, that body of literature. Uh, I know that the drug is under um, experimental assessment. I, I believe, if, my, if I'm not mistaken, that people are actually looking at it for in the oncology field now, or I should say the experimental therapeutic. But at least to my knowledge, I, I don't know, uh, don't believe that uh, DCA is being looked at for uh, inherited respiratory chain diseases. However, I might be incorrect on that. Thank you, Dr. Miller. Uh, Dr. Miller and Dr. Klein, several people asked the same question, which is how many children are needed for this phase to be uh, aspect of the trial at the different centers, and could you provide an update on where we are today and what our anticipated close date is, if you will, for when those children will be all recruited and being treated? Thanks, Christy. Uh, the target enrollment for the Lay syndrome trial is uh, 30, 30 children. Uh, right now, we have uh, identified 20 children for the trial and still need uh, nominally 10 more. Uh, so, and our goal would be to try to get the trial enrolled by the end of uh, by the end of June, so over the next three months or so. Uh, 
understanding that the actual process of getting enrolled and and uh, all the tests needed for to start the study are are significant. So the while we have the patients identified, it still takes a bit of time to actually get them into the trial. Okay, super. And um, right now, the three centers that are open, um, you know, there's concern, I think, in the community that because of the stringent criteria, it's hard to know that there are enough kids to fill the trial. Can you let us know if the trial is going to stay open and if you don't meet that by the end of June and what we as a community can do to help support this trial so that it can be successful? We here at Edison have not have no reason to believe that we will not be able to get the necessary 30 children into the trial. We're very confident of that. Uh, let me uh, again emphasize our, our gratitude to the patient community and families uh, for their interest in the trial. I would, uh, again, our plan is to continue to enroll. Our hope is that it will be enrolled by the end of June. Sometimes things take a little longer than we expect. Sometimes they take a little shorter than we expect. But we just I just want to send the, the clear message that we're, we're committed to uh, getting this trial done and would encourage any families who think they may meet the criteria, whether they, they're not certain if they have a genetic diagnosis or not certain that they've progressed, but just to contact their local doctors, contact uh, you and Cliff and your organizations, and uh, get it screened for the trial. Yeah, I, I would add another comment there, Chrissy. The uh, you know running you know what some people call hyper orphan diseases, which are you know very rare diseases, uh, well under the the two hundred thousand threshold, is not easy. And I, I don't think anyone should come to the uh, to the table, as it were, with the expectation that uh, aligning centers, uh, creating bridges between foundations, investigators, and sponsors, working with the FDA, and most importantly, um, being able to figure out how to, uh, as Dr. Klein said earlier, uh, work with uh, families from either a sponsor side, in this case Edison, or investigators to help um, uh, patients travel large distances who have uh, very active, robust families with a, a sick child. Uh, from our side, we, we marvel, frankly, at the uh, uh, the tenacity of families and the um, uh, the spirit of, uh, of participating in trials and, and getting care to them. And we can't in underway um, uh, underestimate the uh, the emotional and logistical challenges of doing that. And we're you know, as a company, we're incredibly grateful for uh, the uh, the reach out from uh, from the UMDF, from Ido Action, from our investigators, and, and obviously from the patients in participating. We, uh, Dr. Klein and I, as practicing physicians, you know, we'd like to believe we understand um, at least part of uh, the complexity that goes into that. Uh, as as Matt said earlier, we have uh, already identified um, you know, a little over 20 patients um, in. Um, about six months since uh, starting, or about uh, five months since starting the trial. Uh, we, of course, would, would love to identify uh, the balance of patients so that we can get them into the trial. Uh, we have no reason to suspect that uh, the trial won't enroll. In fact, 
Uh, I think the numbers are, are picking up considerably. So um, you know, one of the, the things that we'd like to emphasize in, in this phone call are really the two things as a drug de development company that uh, really are you know, essential for us to perform you know, our part of the, the activity. Uh, and, and we've been, um, as it were, preaching this from the very beginning of Edison in, in setting things up, uh, which is the, the question that comes up again and again. Uh, if I know I have a mitochondrial disease, why do I need to get a genetic diagnosis? And the answer we've been giving all along is you're going to want a genetic diagnosis, if at all possible, because the FDA will require that, uh, certainly for, uh, for enrollment in clinical trials, if that is of interest. And then secondly, uh, that many insurance companies uh, will begin to look at genetic diagnoses as criteria for treatment. And so we encourage patients uh, to take control of their uh, healthcare destiny by getting a genetic diagnosis, participating in registries so they can be known, especially in the case where they're rare diseases, uh, because we believe that that will benefit, uh, of course, um, you know, somewhat biased here, our interest as a drug developer so that we can uh, enroll uh, children and adults in clinical trials, but also we believe that it's to the, the community and ultimately to the patient's interest to, to get that genetic diagnosis, uh, and that's, that's critical. Uh, so I, I think we, we look at this as a, as a process. Uh, we're very proud of the work that uh, the investigator team has, has done to date, Christy. Uh, it's not without challenges, and, and I think Edison certainly doesn't want to paint a, um, a false picture of the process. It is very hard. Uh, it is very capital intensive. Uh, the work and the stretching of our investigators uh, outside of their private practice and clinical commitments, the nurse coordinators, the nurses, and the family, everyone is doing double time work here. And we're, uh, we won't make light of that uh, in, uh, in any way. People are working as hard as they can to make this happen. And we're, we're very confident that the trial will enroll. Our target date is to identify the last uh, 10 patients uh, and have them enrolled uh, before the close of June 30. We'd like to begin to read out results in the trial by the end of uh, 2013, the very beginning of 14. And so um, with that as a little bit of cheerleading, uh, if you are a patient uh, or an investigator or you know someone who could be interested, we'd be grateful uh, for folks to get in touch either with UMDF, MitoAction, our investigator team, uh, Russ Sinedo, um, Greg Enns, Bruce Cohen, uh, or Dr. Scaglia down in, in Texas, uh, or, uh, or any of the, the folks in, uh, in the Edison Investigator Network, we'd be happy to, uh, to get you folks plugged in. Let's take another call. Mike, uh, what is your question? I'm sorry, Mike, hold and, on. Uh, hear me now? Go ahead. Go ahead. Great. Um, my first question is, um, is there any chance of using EPI-743 uh, for compassionate use? Yeah, we, we've been asked that question a lot, um, and the short answer is yes, and the question will devolve to when, not if. Uh, right now, uh, we're required, again, by FDA, that every patient um, that uh, meets a criteria of a clinical trial that we have up and running uh, must be entered into a clinical trial, uh, and that's uh, mandated by the FDA. And the FDA's concern is what, what they are focused on, again, the, coming back to my sore throat analogy, is that Edison worked to prove whether the drug works or whether it doesn't work for the particular indication at the dose over the duration. What the FDA also understands is that um, in the case of unmet medical needs in uh, highly 
uh, debilitating or, or even lethal diseases such as mitochondrial disease, that under exceptional circumstances they will allow uh, physicians to make requests of drug companies and drug companies to supply drug. And that uh, can happen under what you described generally compassionate use. The FDA will describe it as either a physician-sponsored investigative new drug application or in the case of a sponsor like Edison, a expanded access protocol where you're making the drug available pre-approval uh, for use in a limited number of circumstances where you're tracking its safety and potentially some of the efficacy criteria. Mike, let me just divert a little bit and then come back to the, the last part of your question. This is, though, different, reflecting on Christie's question internationally. Different geographical uh, areas in the world uh, have different uh, mechanisms whereby that would happen in Europe. Uh, there are a, uh, is a well-concerted process called named patient approval, whereby if a drug is showing uh, promise, uh, one can submit on a country-by-country -country basis applications to regulatory authorities such that the sponsor, in this case Edison, can make the drug available for what in this case would amount for compassionate use. Mm -hmm. But similar to the FDA, the European Medicines Agency also has a mandate that any patient that would be eligible for a clinical trial would have to seek treatment or perhaps be in the placebo arm uh, in a clinical trial and could not circumvent the study of the drug to gain access to the drug for compassionate use. Now, coming back to the question of uh, if Edison says, yes, we, we are going to initiate that, I, I think really the, the most germane part of the question is when. Um, let me comment on uh, three aspects of compassionate use and expanded access. First, um, which sometimes goes unnoticed, it, it's a very costly activity for the investigators uh, and for Edison, uh, and it's costly in that one has to uh, take a, an exceptional amount of time out of the, uh, the treatment uh, physicians to file appropriate regulatory information, gain investigative review board approval, uh, have an individual subject tracked at their institution, supply all of that data back to Edison, Edison to report back to the FDA, and in addition, uh, to Edison manufacturing drug uh, to meet the needs of the clinical trials, we then need to manufacture more drug uh, to meet the needs of either compassion use or expanded access. And all of that uh, has a time burden on the already very taxed investigator uh, organization, the hospital investigative review boards, as well as the Edison uh, team. So in the last uh, 90 days, Edison, with the investigator team, has been focusing uh, the vast, vast majority of our resources on uh, gaining uh, answers about clinical trials, but we're very cognizant that there are patients uh, under exceptional circumstances who won't meet criteria for clinical trials and um, have been petitioning either their physicians or Edison for access to, to the drug for compassionate use or expanded access, or in the case of your name patient approval. Uh, we're looking at this very, very closely at this time. Right now, the vast majority of our drug manufacturing capabilities are going to support the large number of individuals who are in clinical trials. So the first obstacle to Edison supplying the drug is we, in fact, need to have the drug to supply. And right now, the vast majority of our, our manufactured drug is supporting the ongoing clinical trials. Uh, what we will do is once the clinical trials um, start to uh, and uh, with Lay syndrome, Friedrich's ataxia, cobalamine C, and conclude the placebo control arm of the trial. Uh, we expect to have more drug available, and we'll look very carefully at this 
in Q4 of 2013 and are working, of course, with the FDA and the investigators to see whether perhaps um, starting an expanded access program in the United States makes sense. So again, to recap, uh, we're very sensitive to the, the topic of compassionate use and expanded access, especially for those patients who don't meet existing enrollment criteria, or in some cases it would be clear that they would never meet uh, enrollment criteria because their disease is so, so rare as a hyper, hyper orphan disease, and it would be unlikely that someone would conduct a clinical trial. So we're very sensitive to this. And frankly, as are uh, the investigators teams and, and uh, Cliff and, and Christy and Chuck and many in the foundations and the Edison team have been talking about this almost since the inception of Edison, point one. Point two is it's an, uh, an exceptional amount of work, uh, albeit a very rewarding work, to make sure that patients get treated uh, under a compassionate use. And we're judiciously uh, allocating our collective resources to make sure that we can fulfill our requirements to the FDA to get clinical trials. And lastly, while it might sound a little mundane, we need to physically have the drug manufactured to be able to supply uh, compassionate use. Today, it takes roughly about a half of a kilo uh, of drug to treat uh, a subject per year. We have under treatment from the initial expanded access close to 100 subjects. So 50 kilos of drug per year alone are being allocated to non-clinical trials um, to, uh, to support patients who are being treated. So we just need to make sure that uh, we never, of course, run out of drug and never, certainly never run out of drug for uh, patients who are in clinical trials. And so these three points are the ones that we constantly have our fingers on the pulse uh, on, and we're looking at them very, very closely. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Miller and Dr. Klein, would you speak a little bit about specifically from your um, phase 2A experience with the trial, what does EPI-743 do for people who are not familiar? Yeah, um, the, the phase 2A data that, that was generated in, um, in Rome was the, uh, the study design was the result of the data that we saw under the expanded access when we've treated um, many lay syndrome subjects with diverse clinical diagnoses worldwide. And the first goal of the, the 743 study was to recapitulate or repeat uh, that, that data in a more controlled setting at a single site, removing as many variables that could have explained uh, as a false positive the, the data that was observed under expanded access. And in that study, we strove to do two things. One, or I should say three things. One is to treat uh, individuals in a prospective, as unbiased as possible in a 2A open-label trial, uh, to explore a dose that we thought was consistent with efficacy, and to make two correlations. One, a correlation that the drug effect that we saw in expanded access uh, was also seen in this controlled setting. And that secondly, that the, the way that the drug works, or we refer to as the mechanism of action, uh, that we could register a blood test that would be consistent uh, with our belief of how 743 worked. And so there were three criteria. Number one, could we see what we saw before? Number two, uh, could we discern a, a very clear clinical benefit? And could we correlate that clinical benefit to a blood test that was known to correlate to the disease and known to correlate to how the drug worked? And our um, investigator uh, team 
uh, and Edison uh, worldwide uh, are, are very excited, uh, albeit exceedingly cautious, that we achieved all three goals. And the most important one, uh, of course, for the patient community is that we saw the same clinical benefit in the uh, vast, vast majority of the patients that we saw under expanded access, number one. Uh, number two, that we had various clinical instruments, as it were, measurement tools, where uh, the clinical benefit uh, made sense uh, across these different tools or, or, or criteria or examinations. And then lastly, uh, the subject of a paper that's been accepted and um, uh, will be published shortly, that we could correlate a blood test uh, to the clinical effect, and we could correlate that blood test to the mechanism of 743. And so what we now know, coming directly to your question, Christy, about how does 743 work, is that 743 works to balance two major, shall we call them cogs, or wheels of metabolism. The, the wheel of metabolism that the mitochondrial uh, community has been, um, uh, by and large, uh, most focused on is the mitochondria and its role in energy. Uh, but the mitochondria has a, a very uh, other, uh, or, or many other, imp important functions in the cell, one of them being the balance of and regulation of metabolism. And a second wheel that must operate in tandem with the ability to generate energy is what we call redox. It's the electronic accounting of cells, how cells move electrons through them and regulate that process. And part of that process critically deals with oxidative stress, which is elevated in mitochondrial patients and perhaps other diseases and perhaps even aging. And so we now know that 743 does is to attack that second part of critical mitochondrial function, the ability to combat oxidative stress. Uh, it is not an antioxidant. Uh, an antioxidant works by a vastly different mechanism. What 743 does is to molecularly dock or interact with a particular target inside a cell called NQO1, NADPH quinone oxidase 1, and it facilitates as a redox cofactor electron transfer through that active site and results in the replenishment of a critical cellular redox system called the glutathione cycle. And so in brief, Christy, what we've learned is we have a clinical response. It correlates to what was seen earlier. We have a biochemical fingerprint that is consistent with the disease. Fantastic work that's been done by many investigators worldwide at the Bambino Gesù in London by Shimino Rahman, uh, Dr. Enns at Stanford focusing on this particular part of mitochondrial function, redox and glutathione. And we now know that 743 exquisitely affects in a positive or favorable way that system. And we've now been able to map that into the laboratory at Edison as well. And so that would be the, the, the long answer, Christy, to how 743 works. That's the best explanation I've heard so far. So thank you, Dr. Miller. That's great. Uh, Cliff, go ahead. I think you have a couple of questions that have come in on your side. We do. We have a few questions that, came, that were submitted to us through the chat uh, feature here, Dr. Miller, and I will ask them both. Um, the first one is, are people participating in the clinical, do they have um, the same or different symptoms? And the second question that has come in, and it's, it's a popular one, we've been asked this several times, um, 
Can we expect anything from Edison relative to Milos? Yeah, uh, yeah, great. So we'll tackle the first one. You, you know, again, uh, I believe that uh, I, well, I always uh, collectively remember, Cliff, the, the first time that Edison um, was given an opportunity to talk on a Saturday session at UMDF. And uh, I always uh, block on the investigator um, from Pittsburgh who, who stood up and cogently expressed the, the, the Edison and drug developer challenge. And a very, very smart investigator, she said, well, uh, how does Edison plan to deal with patient heterogeneity given that you can have two patients who, from the same family, uh, whether twins or, or brothers or siblings, who have the same genetic mitochondrial mutation but have a vastly different clinical presentation? And I, I think that so succinctly in such plain English uh, describes the, the Herculean challenge of developing a drug for rare mitochondrial diseases in that you can have virtually the same genetic diagnosis or you can have the same genetic diagnosis and have such a different clinical presentation. And so we would love, it would make our job so much easier if every patient with a particular genetic uh, mitochondrial uh, disease, for example, even say Leber's hereditary optic neuropathy, one would believe within the three-point mutations that they would be uh, have um, have the same clinical course, and while you know two of them by and large do, and the third may be a little bit different, there, there's an immense amount of uh, diversity in the clinical presentation, which I first, the actual density of lesion, the location of lesion, and while there are general similarities, uh, when you really look at the data closely, as our investigator team has, there from a drug developer's perspective, are marked differences in in these what one would at first principles believed to be a fairly homogeneous group. And so the, uh, the short answer to your question is no, Cliff. Um, we, we would love to be in the position where we could quote unquote mandate patients to have uh, all have the same uh, clinical complex, but that's one of the challenges that we have with uh, regulators uh, and clinical trial sites is to set up instruments that are effectively clinical measurement nets or umbrellas that allow us to get uh, uh, objective composite picture of all the symptoms of mitochondrial disease. And so with Lay syndrome, we're looking at things like growth, weight, hospitalizations, uh, seizure, respiratory pattern, uh, metabolic control, diabetes, uh, spasticity, dystonia, uh, all of these things that we know that reflect uh, the disease and potential treatment, well aware that, um, that no two patients are alike, and, uh, and frankly, we have no expectation that they will be, which uh, really adds to the complexity of the disease. Um, with respect to uh, MILAS, the answer is yes. Uh, we have a fully uh, developed and vetted protocol uh, for, uh, for MILAS at this point in time. We're working through some end-stage specifics uh, of that protocol with our investigator team, and the mitochondrial community should expect uh, to hear something from medicine no later than the next uh, 180 days on that, and we're well aware that this is a, uh, a devastating, devastating disease and certainly is uh, meritorious of, of any company uh, with a potential therapeutic looking at it. Okay. Fantastic. Um, and, you know, uh, just to give representation to the entire community, uh, we've talked a lot about children and the future, but um, if you could briefly just speculate on the future for uh, adult patients as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, Christy, you and I have spoken about this many, many times. Uh, you know, in, in, the, in an ideal world, of course, Edison would have and investigator teams would have the, the bandwidth to do, you know, you know, 20, 30 clinical trials, uh, we, we would love nothing more than that. 
and we're, we're very cognizant that, um, that of those patients that frequently don't meet the enrollment criteria, uh, sometimes age plays a role in that, and we're, of course, exceedingly sensitive to that, and as well sensitive to the, to the issue that, in, in many cases, there's a lack of a genetic diagnosis, both in children and in adults, and that, uh, of course, presents the, um, the confounders that we talked about earlier. But the, the, the patient uh, and investigator team uh, should expect to hear uh, from Edison, you know, starting with, uh, with MILOS, uh, that uh, that we are undertaking the development of drugs uh, for adult uh, uh, indications of mitochondrial disease, and of course, uh, notwithstanding the uh, the taxonomy, as it were, of foundations, uh, Friedrich's ataxia is by and large uh, more so of a, an adult disorder, even though it obviously is, is diagnosed usually in the teens. So Edison has no uh, we have no biases. We'd like to believe, and certainly no uh, no age biases. We just need to get through these studies uh, one study at, at a time, but we're very, very interested in, uh, in ensuring that, uh, that we can get adults well represented into the clinical trials. Wonderful, thank you. Dr. Millen, Dr. Klein, do you have time for us to take a couple more questions from callers? Yes, sure. Okay, uh, Cliff, you okay. wanna um, open that up for somebody? Sure we can. Steve, do you have a question? Uh, yeah. Uh, I wanted to know if there was any plan to change the inclusion criteria specific to a genetic confirmation. I'm sorry if I missed that earlier. Um, if, if you had symptomatic uh, spasticity and degeneration over a period of time and MRI confirmations and things of that nature. Yes, thank you for your question. We are looking uh, at all of those criteria very closely. Uh, as we discussed earlier, uh, they, they are in place now after a great deal of uh, thinking and consideration between the Edison team and the investigator team, and most importantly, the regulators. So we stand right now with those agreed upon criteria by all parties, but uh, suffice to say we are, we are looking at that very, very carefully. Okay, let's take another caller. Um, Lynn, do you have a question? Yes, I do. Um, with regards to expanded use, um, is the FDA interested in long-term results um, with expanded use of, of the drug? You know, with other drugs, you know, you, you can say um, it's been out there for three years, ten years, whatever, you know, and it's shown to be safe and effective? Yeah, that's a great question, Lynn. You know, the FDA, are in, in their, um, you know, given their, their jurisdictions and the things that they're, they're focused on are, are very smart and are, are really looking at, at answering two questions, and then I'll just frame the question that you're asking a little bit in the context. Um, you know, number one, you know, is the drug safe uh, at the dose prescribed? And number two, uh, does the drug provide uh, you know, fairly unequivocal evidence of its efficacy, and does that efficacy mean something? You know, in other words, if, if the drug does something and it works, but the, the, the thing that it works on doesn't translate to a, a patient benefit or a medical benefit, then, of course, working has to mean not only did it work, but it, it did something that was 
known to be clinically meaningful. So, for example, to break that down into a very simplistic side in Lay syndrome, you know, if you um, improved uh, respiration uh, or the respiratory center in Lay syndrome, clearly that would be important. So, hypothetically, if you showed that patients who were treated with 743 did not progress to go on a ventilator versus those that were not, uh, that would be not only statistically significant if shown, but also be clinically, you know, a very, very important finding. And so, Leaving aside the efficacy part, uh, the FDA is very, uh, very, very concerned about uh, safety. And with regards to, uh, in small, discrete populations, uh, how safety gets measured, uh, you know, the FDA will look at all data. And we're required uh, under the 2009-1 protocol, the expanded access, to track meticulously uh, any uh, adverse events that occur with patients that are related to the, the natural history of disease or adverse events that could be related to the drug. And so that dossier uh, is critical. We're, we're required to make filings to the FDA on a, on a well-prescribed uh, uh, periodic basis and also to disperse that information to the investigator community should there be a side effect uh, that is potentially attributable to the drug, that the entire investigator community, not only in the U.S., and we extend this outside, are all informed so that, God forbid, there was a rare uh, side effect uh, that two investigators saw that everyone would be advantaged of that. In other words, there's 100% transparency uh, between our collation of that data uh, in controlled clinical trials, we, we also have another layer on top of that, a data safety monitoring board. So suffice it to say, there, there's an immense amount of vigilance and detail at looking at all the data that comes from the patients who are treated. Uh, the FDA will most certainly not only uh, look at that data, uh, but look very closely at that data, uh, even though it's been obtained in a, in a non-controlled uh, manner, i.e. Phase, phase one, phase two, phase three trial. It's, uh, been looked at through expanded access, they certainly will look at it, and they've made clear their desire to look at that uh, on an ongoing basis. Uh, with regards to where we are today, uh, we've treated, we use in round numbers, roughly about 100 patients under expanded access or compassionate use, and we're roughly at about 75,000 cumulative dosing days. And over that, uh, that horizon, uh, we do not have any events recorded. Uh, in terms of drug toxicity related to the drug. Clearly, there have been adverse events uh, because the patients with mitochondrial disease are very sick, and so we track those very closely, but it's been the, um, the assessment of the investigator team, uh, not Edison, it's the, the job of the investigator team to assess whether when something bad, as it were, happens, uh, whether it's a minor bad or a severe bad, whether it was related to the drug or not. And So far, we're at you know, 75,000 patient dosing days, and, and we have seen um, uh, evidence that suggests that 743 so far is safe. Thank you, Dr. Miller. Yeah, I, I just wanted to jump in with a comment also that I think um, Dr. Miller and Dr. Klein, we've talked about, but we haven't really given the perspective of on this call, which is that this is such a fast process that you guys are doing for the mitochondrial disease community compared to what I think a typical drug to market um, development would be. And so we really have to stay engaged and also um, pay a considerable amount of respect to you and to the investigators um, because this is really, you know, it's been four years since we first talked about this 
being a, an idea of a treatment for kids with mitochondrial disease and to see um, 75,000 patient dosing days at this point is really remarkable given that in some cases uh, drugs take 20 years to develop. And I want to urge the community to stay very engaged and um, and closely involved with what's happening with Edison and to share the information that's published on both clinicaltrials.gov and you can um, look up the abstracts to share with your physicians, your primary care doctors in particularly and your non-mitochondrial specialists from um, pubmed.gov so that they can stay informed also because we really need to galvanize as a community to support this trial. Um, I would also say that if you, if I have not talked to you and you have a child with Lee's disease and um, and you have not made yourself known that you are available to be screened, even if you don't think that you qualify and you're, you've been told that you don't, we want to be sure that we know who you are so that we can communicate with you when other opportunities are available. Um, Dr. Miller and Dr. Klein and Cliff, is there anything that we haven't specifically asked or talked about today that you'd also like to comment on? Yeah, I think the uh, the, the one thing that we would put a, a large uh, call out to is our investigator uh, collaborators, um, you know, worldwide. Uh, you know, of course, if I start listing them, I'm sure I'll, I'll forget some of them, so let me beg off listing them other than to say that uh, that we are so, so proud of uh, the opportunity to work with um, you know, clearly, as the, as the patient families know, the, some of the best and brightest doctors uh, in the medical profession, understanding the basic science of the mitochondria, working tirelessly to help children and adults. And then as if uh, there's any hours in the day for this physician and um, nursing and uh, clinical care support team to hoist on top of them the, the extra burden of, um, of running a clinical trial where the resources are already spread thin. And so we are... Um, uh, we're humbled uh, by the uh, uh, the 24-hour days that uh, that the whole team and these communities are are, are rallying around. Uh, we um, we're just very very grateful uh, for uh, for the hard work and um, and passion uh, because without uh, the the efforts of uh, of the doctors and nurses and all of the affiliated medical personnel in these institutions uh, worldwide. Uh, none of these um, 75,000 doses, uh, cumulative days, would have occurred. Uh, we have um, also fantastic support of um, the regulatory agencies who have expedited reviews of documents, and we're, uh, we're very grateful for that as well. So we feel like we're on the, on the verge, hopefully, of uh, being, to get, being able to get answers to uh, very important questions. Uh, of course, we can't control what those answers will be, but we can certainly can control the hard work that everyone, um, at least from the Edison side, puts into to making this happen. And we're we're very appreciative, Christy, of uh, of all the foundations worldwide, whether it be UMDF, uh, Mito Action, and, and the whole host of uh, of patient foundations. Uh, I fund in, in terms of lepers hereditary neuropathy, Farah for Friedrich's ataxia. Uh, the, the mitochondrial foundations in uh, in Italy, Germany, uh, Europe, uh, the UK uh, have just been fantastic allies in this process, and I think we all realize that this doesn't happen without an immense, immense 
of hard work, especially in the case of pioneering a first set of clinical trials. And we're just, we're really tickled pink. We're, we're very pleased with how this is going. You know, people are, are really rallying and doing the best they can. And of course, we can't ask for anything more than that. So uh, a large thank you on behalf of, uh, of Edison to, um, to all the people who are making this happen. We're, we're incredibly grateful. Thank you so much, Dr. Miller, and I, I apologize to those of you who we did not get an opportunity to take your question or ask your question. I think we could have a, a eight-hour press conference, Dr. <laughs> Miller, but um, but we can't hold you captive for that long. So, um, uh, Cliff, thank you so much for setting this up so that we could use the UMDF uh, WebEx. My pleasure. And, uh, and everyone who's participated in the call, we really appreciate your involvement. Um, please do come forward to us and let us know if you are a patient who has a child with least or a parent with a child with least disease, so that we can um, get that information from you. And uh, Dr. Miller, we appreciate every time that we hear you talk, and um, I think we need to have another opportunity to catch up, maybe in July or August, so we can hear how things are going. So we'll work on that with you. Great. Uh, thank you very much, Christy, and, and thanks to the community. Okay, great. And let's all let's all join us in um, you know, raising a hand to thank um Dr. Miller and Dr. Klein for their time. Everybody have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you.